This morning we continue in our series through the book of Psalms, Psalm 5, and the search for justice. Let me begin by asking, does God have any enemies? How would you answer that question? If you're born into a Muslim family, you might answer that question, yes, God's enemies are Americans and are Israelis. If you're born into a Hindu family, you might say, yes, God's enemies are Muslims and Christians. If you're most, like most people, you probably find the question, though, in our culture, absurd. Really, God, does God have enemies? Doesn't that go against the whole definition of who God is? Is having enemies possible for God? People have enemies, sure, we know that, but God, does God have enemies? I mean, you do know that people have enemies. If you don't know that, just go online for an hour or two. Samuel Huntington has observed it is human to hate. Most can agree with this, but does God hate? Sounds foreign to the mind of the common American. Some have stated that the idea that God has enemies and needs human help in order to identify and dispose of them is a little difficult to assimilate. So I asked, does God have enemies? I'm not asking whether there's a political or religious organization that uses this language to emotionally intimidate or bully people. I'm asking whether the God who actually exists in heaven have enemies. If he sure does, surely you want to know who they are and what to do about it, right? And if God does have enemies, will justice come? We come back to Psalm 5, and this morning we enter back into a conflict that David is experiencing as he's running from his son Absalom. And in the psalm, David talks about his enemies, about their offense to God and his word, that their lies, their deceit, their rejection. And he brings us into the distress that he's facing as God's enemies are pushing against the leadership that God has given. Last week we searched for peace, this week we searched for justice. And complete and perfect justice is coming. God promises as much. If you haven't already, turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 5. If you're using a book or a Bible that's provided, it's on page 419. I encourage you to have a Bible open. It'll help you as we walk through the psalm. If you're unfamiliar with reading the Bible, that's okay. The, the large number is the chapter number, Psalm 5, and the small numbers are the verse numbers there. I'm going to read the entire psalm, Psalm 5, so follow with me as I read. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread 
your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with the favor as with a shield. Would you join me as I pray? Father, we come before your throne and I ask that you would help your people that seated here this morning to hear from you. God, that you would listen to our pleas this morning to hear from you. You are our king, our God. And we recognize in this psalm that you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Help us to understand who you are this morning. I pray that I can stand out of the way so that your people can hear from you. It's for your honor and glory that we gather this morning to worship you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you came in this morning, you should have got a bulletin and a set of notes, and on there is three points that I want to cover this morning. The three are confidence. The first one is confidence in a God who hears our prayers, verses one through three. Second, reverence for a God who despises evildoers, verses four through six and verses nine through ten. And third, security for a God who rescues sinners, verses 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. So first, the confidence in a God who hears our prayers. Confidence, at least it seemed to me, is a tricky word, and I wonder if we use it correctly. To be confident in something means we're convinced that you can rely on it. Is there really anything on earth that you have complete confidence in? Are you confident in your car? I'm not let me down many times before. It's running fine now, but I don't know how much longer that'll happen. Are you confident in the weather report? They say it will be nice, but it might rain. I guess you could say we're optimistic. How about your job? Are you confident that you'll have a job next week? Maybe you have nothing presently to worry about, but can you rely on it always to be there? If you're honest, you can't say that. No one can be fully confident in that. Why? Because you're ultimately not in control. And that's really the crux of the issue for our lives. We're not in control. We have developed um, these, these pictures to think we're in control, these ideas that we're in control, but we really aren't. It's an optical illusion. You are in control, not fully. But there is one who truly is in control, and he's not going to abdicate that responsibility to you. Confidence is a tricky word, I think. We use it, but I don't think we use it rightly in this world. It seems as though it's an otherworldly word. It should be used in regard only of God. And here in Psalm 5, we see David's confidence in God. The psalm is on the heels of Psalm 4 and Psalm 3. We didn't look at Psalm 3 last week, but that's David's cry to God when he first hears of Absalom's revolt and a subsequent attempt to take the throne. And then David flees for his life. In Psalm 4, which we looked at last week, is David's prayer in the evening. And now we come to Psalm 5, and this is his prayer in the morning. The description that you see in your Bible there is to the choir master for flutes, a psalm of David. This is a, a congregational song to be sung. And David writes in verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David cries out in confidence that God would hear his words. Give ear, listen to me, God. 
But not only his words, but his, his groaning. He says that these are, these are words that are locked up in his heart. And I don't know about you, but there's sometimes all we can do is just groan in our prayers. It's deep distress that's in, that David's going through, and he tries to put his thoughts into words. But there's still some that he can't quite get out there. It's the same language that we read in Romans 8 of the promise of the Holy Spirit who, who helps in our weakness with groanings that are too deep for words. Have you ever felt that? Maybe that's where you're at right now. Words don't come, but your heart and your spirit groans. It's, it's a sign because of distress and trouble. You cry out to God. This is David. And he continues to give attention to the sound of my cry. Listen attentively, God, to, to me. Hear me like a child meekly coming to a parent to ask a question. This is David coming to his God. Spurgeon has said, ah, my, my brothers and sisters, sometimes we cannot put our prayers into words. They are nothing but a cry, but the Lord can comprehend the meaning for he hears a voice in the cry. And then get this, he says, to a loving father, his children's cries are music. And they have a magic influence which his heart cannot resist. That's our Father. This is God, but not as God only. He says, My King. This is the first time in the Psalter that David uses his designation. The word my is a, is a covenantal designation. It gives his prayer footing, it gives it strength. He's also putting his own earthly kingship into the right context, too. He submits himself into the, under the rightful ruler of all, and that's his God and his king. That's what he is, both his God and his rightful king. And this is why God should answer David's cry for help, because he is his king and his God. And as Christians, we're not foreign to God. He is the king of our lives. And kings are supposed to hear the appeals of their people. We're not strangers to God, but we're his worshipers, because he is our God. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, he will hear our pleas and our cries, and he will answer us. You remember last week, we looked at that. He cannot help but answer. That's what he does. That's what he does for his children. David says, he continues, Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David is persistent in his prayers. In the morning you hear my voice, my covenant-keeping God. He comes to God, and when does he do it? For David, it's in the morning. And I've learned in the 40-plus years that I've spent on earth that morning time is usually the best time to pray. Some of you think you're not a morning person. I understand. I'm married to one. She's delight, though. I don't know if I'm a morning person. But I've learned that in the morning is the time. Spurgeon has said, this is the fittest time for discussion with God. An hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. While the dew is on the grass, let grace drop upon the soul. Let us give to God the mornings of our days and morning of our lives. It seems smarter for us in the hustle of our days, especially in the midst of the culture in which we live, to, to spend time with God in the morning, to pray. Before the phone begins to ring and text messages begin to come in, we should look to spend time in prayer. The morning usually is the less distracting time. We can be more focused. If we wait till later in the day, you might get more distracted. And it doesn't mean we don't pray throughout the day. The scriptures say we must do that also, but the morning seems best. I've tried for years in my life to pray in the evening before bed, but usually you know what happens, right? You lay down, you're ready to sleep, and you think 
God, you're omniscient. You know all my prayers. I'm going to sleep. And that's not good enough. We need to give to God first. Just like the money that God blesses you with, giving to the church and giving to the Lord's work before you give to the IRS. Give to God first your moments in the morning in prayer. And how should you pray? David says, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The NIV and New American Standard are similar. They say, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. But I feel the ESV is more accurate. To, to prepare a sacrifice in the Old Testament, you had to follow a certain set of rules. You had to be precise and direct. You had to arrange things just so. And so David is painting that picture for us. He is carefully praying, laying out his request before God with the same carefulness that he would in the temple. Why? Well, if we are careless with our prayers, if we throw up some words here and there, then how do we know if God's answered? Careful prayers give us assurance. Are we careful with our prayers to God? Are we concise and accurate in how we come to him in need? It's a deliberateness that David is doing here. He, he prays and he comes deliberately and then he waits. He eagerly waits for the Lord to answer his prayers. He's, he's praying in confidence to his God and his king. And how many of you have come in here this morning living fearful and anxiety-filled lives? Friends, the only way to battle this temptation to worry is to remind yourself of who God is, the God whom you serve and pray to. And you pray with confidence that God will hear your prayers. And how do you do that? Well, I would suggest this morning, pray the Psalms. Literally, open your Bible and pray the Psalms. Pray the word of God back to God. The Psalms are our prayer book. It's your guide to learn how to pray. Use it. Don't neglect it. Commit to spend this week praying one psalm each day. Choose the psalm for the date. Tomorrow is the 13th, so pray Psalm 13. Occasionally, I will text one of you in the church and ask if there's something I can pray for. And what I do is I go to that date and I pray that psalm. And if there's nothing there, it's, a, it's possibly a precatory psalm against the enemies. Maybe skip. So Psalm 13 is tomorrow, but if there's not something there that resonates, skip 30 and pray Psalm 43. And then skip 30 and pray Psalm 77 or 73. Skip 30 more and pray Psalm 103. Skip 30 more and Psalm 133. You know, there's 150 Psalms in our Bible. And you can do this every day of the month, most months, and pray through a Psalm every day, five Psalms. This is what Donald Whitney's book talking about praying the Bible. And I believe it's helpful. It's been helpful to me in my spiritual life to pray. Pray what God's word says. And as you pray the Psalms, your confidence in God grows because you know he hears our prayers. Second, we should have reverence for a God who despises evildoers. What comes into your mind when you hear the word reverence? Is it kind of a namby-pamby word? Like a Hallmark greeting card that says, shh, let's be quiet and respectful. He's a lived a long life. He's old, he's wore out. Let's respect him. Let's be reverent. I don't think that's what the, the Bible talks about. Maybe a better word would be fear. We should fear a God who despises evildoers. What does fear mean in the Bible regarding God? It's, it's saying it's an awe-inspiring recognition of who he is. It's an amazement for God. You fear him. You recognize who he is. 
because you see him for all that he is. And David here in this psalm is gonna show us who God is in verses four through six, and then later he's gonna show us who man is in verses nine and 10. So first, and this is in your notes, but fear the character of God. Fear the character of God, verses four through six. He says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. After David has resolved to pray, he offers up his prayer to God about his enemies by stating what he knows about his God. David knows the character of God. God's very nature is to hate evil, and he directs all of his powers to destroy evil. He is active against evil. And we live in a world that doesn't want to talk about the wrath of God. We, we covered this a number of weeks ago. Our culture would much rather discuss the love of God. But David doesn't shy away from the holiness of God here. David understood God to be infinitely holy, and he could not approve of or tolerate or fellowship with sin. The prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of pure eyes tend to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He, he won't allow the arrogant to stand. He says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes here in Psalm 5. The proud in heart will not stand before God with no action. And he says, you hate all evildoers. God is not tolerant to sin. He's, he's not cozy to sin or sinners. And these are hard words for us to hear because we don't want to think that those things are true about ourselves. Friends, you must never comfort yourself with the thought that sin is just some smudge on your character. It's just something small there, just with a little dab. You can wipe it away and it's gone. You cannot begin to think that God will, will only hate the things you do and somehow separating what you do with who you are. Us, being human, does not entitle us to God's mercy. Sin's very nature lays claim to your entire being as a human. It lays claim to all of you. The scriptures say with clarity, this is what you are naturally. Sin isn't just some blotch on your character. No, it defines you as a non-Christian. It's who you are before you come to Christ. And God will not cozy up to sin and sinners. David says in verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. God will judge sinners. He is just. This is what justice does. He abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That means he hates those that kill and murder, those that are deceitful and lie. God hates them in their sin. And he will not let it go unpunished. He can't. It, it goes against his very nature of who he is. And before we come to Christ, we are sin. Sinners sin. We are sin. It's, it's not just something we do. It's who we are. That's why Paul says he became sin for us. Because we were sin. That defined us. That's what we do. It's how we think. It's how we act. It's how we live. And Christ became sin for us when he died on the cross. And what an astonishing thing sin is. That the Father, the Creator, would abhor it. That God would send his own son not to wipe away the blotch of sin, but to remove it completely, to remake us, to regenerate us. And Christ took upon himself our sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. 
It's amazing truth. And we need to remind ourselves of our creator God and the character of this God. This needs to be applied to our prayers. We should be praying the character of God, opening our Bible and taking note of who he is. As you read through the Bible, make make notes of, of who God is and be praying that, praying something like, you alone, God, are, and fill the blank. Do you think of some of these now? You alone, God, are holy. You alone, God, are just and perfect and beautiful and right and good and patient and merciful and magnificent. And we should be praying this, reminding ourselves of who this God is that we serve. These prayers glorify God. These prayers help us to show fear and reverence to who God is. So we should fear, we should revere the character of God. Secondly, we fear the character of man. Now, why would I say we should fear the character of man? I don't intend it the same way as God. I don't mean it in a reverence type of way, okay? Instead, I think the more we read and study man in Scripture, we fear the depth of sin, how deep it truly goes. It's deeper than we initially see. Jump down to verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David writes about his enemies in verse 8. And these are the men who are seeking to dethrone David and place his son Absalom in there instead. And David realizes that the that not a word from their mouth of their enemies could be trusted. They were destructive. They were slanderous. They were railing others against him, twisting truth. What do liars do? They lie. They deceive themselves and peddle lies to others. And when he says their inmost self is destruction, he's saying that their heart is where it all begins. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 12. The good person of the good treasure bring forth good, and the evil person of the evil treasure bring forth evil. And the heart is centered on evil. So what comes out of their mouth comes from where? I'm going to make sure you're tracking with me here. Their heart. If it wasn't in their heart first, it wouldn't come out of their mouth. And he continues, their their throat is an open grave. As a grave is there to open to receive its victim, so their throat is open to, to devious or to swallow up peace and happiness of others. And they're swallowing up lies. They, they devour these lies. They want these lies. And then he says they, they flatter with their tongue. You recognize that flattery is a dark sin that does no good to you or the hearer. Flattery is a form of lying. And it's a particularly insidious form because in the moment it is spoken, flattery sounds so much like encouragement. That there's a heaven and hell difference between the two. Encouragement is truth spoken from a loving motive to increase faith and hope in the hearer. Flattery is a lie. Masquerading as encouragement from a selfish motive to manipulate the hearer in order to achieve the flatterer's covert purpose. I hate flattery. Do you? Flattery is a dark sin. It's it's deceit. It's wicked. It's demonic. And it should have no place in our speech. 
He says, make them bear their guilt of God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. And catch this, why? For they have rebelled against you. These men are most definitely personally attacking David, but more importantly, they are attacking God. And he's agreeing with God about their sin against him. He feels the weight of sin against himself, but more importantly, he acknowledges the greater issue of sin and the rejection of God. Do you hear the emotion in David's voice? Do you sense the, the, the conflict that he's facing? Now, it may seem natural now to read these verses, and it may be tempting then to apply these verses to someone else. And maybe you're sitting there thinking of your enemies. And you're waiting now. Your mind is racing. This is apply to them. And I need to warn you. You need to apply these verses to yourself first. Do any of these verses sound familiar for anything you read in the New Testament? They should if you've read Romans. Chapter 3, Paul takes these verses from Psalm 5 and applies them to you and me. He applies them to the whole earth. So if we, before we begin to apply verses 9 and 10 to your worst enemy here on earth, you need to pause and apply it to yourself. Because Paul says that it speaks of us first. Let me read what Paul says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is writing about us. You and I are not exempt to the justice of God. It's common to deflect the justice of God thinking I'm really not that bad. I can't be that bad. I'm conservative. I, I read my Bible. I love my family. How could I be that bad? But the Bible says that you are. And Satan wants nothing more than to promise you all the way to hell that you really aren't that bad. And maybe that's the conflict in your heart right now. We are. Every single one of us are really that bad. You have to acknowledge this. You have to agree with this. Or most of the Bible won't make sense. Verse 10 is about you first. We are sinful before God and he is right and he is just to condemn you before, for all eternity. It would be good for you and for your soul to think deeply about the extent of your sin and the depth and the enormity of your sin before a holy God. 
to seriously spend time this week reflecting, thinking deeply about your own sin. And so much of our time, we are tempted to contemplate the sins of others. But how often we spend time contemplating the depth of our own sin. Perhaps even as you're reflecting back on your week, the sins you've done, the list in your mind and how you acted, how you reacted to people and how you repented trying to battle the flesh. And this is good. But what shocks me to my core is those daily sins in my life, those deep running deposits of sin that shoot to the core of me. And we can try to isolate them, maybe even saying that they're just an anomaly. It just happened once. But God reveals to me that those sins are not just isolated. They're connected to me. And they flow out of me. My issues of anger flow out of my core. My disbelief of God. My disbelief that he is truly good. And that he is more beautiful than the sin that I want to commit. And if I'm honest, when I spend time reflecting in my heart, I don't like it. I want to stay here. I want to stay at the surface. Just for a moment. Maybe I just, God, I'll spend a few moments thinking about it, but I don't want to go any deeper. And the longer we spend, the deeper God takes us to show the depths of our heart. That's why preaching the gospel to yourself, reminding yourself of the gospel is so crucial because it takes you all the way down. Have you done this? Have you spent time mining the depths of your own heart? Has God revealed those deposits to you? Have you purposefully walked around the chambers of your own heart and seen the deposits of sin? Are you aware of the lingering deposits of sin into your soul? They're there. The sin of disobedience, knowing you should do something and choosing not to do it. The sin of Anxiety, refusing to to trust in God, instead trusting yourself. The sin of frustration when anything or anyone is blocking your plans. The sin of discontentment when we don't get what we want. We find ourselves continually unhappy with what God has given us. The sin of impatience or irritability when people aren't as quick as we would like them to be. We justify it. I'd be more patient with people if they were a little more quick. What about the sin of envy? You see the sin of envy here so clearly laid out in this psalm? David's enemies, they're envious of David's position, so they work to destroy him, to bring him down. Do you see yourself? Some of you barely made it through the door this morning without envy bearing down on you. They're closed. Look at their family sitting together. Why doesn't my family do that? Look at their looks. Their position. How did they get that position? Their money. Look at their money. Look at their personality. Why, do, why is everyone talking to them? Why don't they talk to me? Envy started for some of you before you even sat down this morning. Do you see it in yourself? Maybe arrogance. You see that in the text? Maybe you think others should be envying you. 
For some reason, you take a sick pleasure when people envy you. That's arrogance. It's sin. Maybe you, you know that you sit here this morning, and maybe even right now or this week, you have pursued sin. And you pursue sin simply because you know God will forgive you. You willfully and thoughtfully sinned this week with the full intention of asking God for forgiveness afterwards. That's arrogance. Do you see yourself in these verses? Maybe you need to spend some time this week asking God to reveal more of who you are and your sin and the deposits that are making their way to the core of you. And if you see your sin and you are not a Christian, not a believer, and you refuse to do anything about it, what will be your response in the last day? Paul tells you what your response will be in Romans 3. He says, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. You will stand before God and you will be silent. Not because God wouldn't let us talk, but because there'll be nothing to say. There'll be no defense. There'll be no argument against our sin. And we will stand silent because we know we're guilty. No one will be justified through the law. Now we, we need someone who satisfied the law completely, who will stand in our place. Is it hopeless for us? Is there any way out of this mess? Is there anything hopeful or encouraging this morning on Mother's Day? I willfully chose to preach on justice on Mother's Day, yep. The third point is security with a God who rescues sinners. Look at verse seven. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Everything is not hopeless. God rescues sinners. His steadfast love. David reminds himself that it's only through God's steadfast love that, that he can enter into the presence of God. It is because of God's mercy that we can come. There's no self-righteousness but David. He's asking God to lead him, to direct his past, that he would act righteously. He, he isn't relying upon himself. He wanted to rely upon God. The unredeemed go away from God, thinking that they can handle it on their own, but the godly go towards God in the midst of trouble. His holiness and justice are far from being a terror to the to a Christian, they are beautiful for the redeemed. And so he goes to God for assurance and for peace in the midst of distress. And the right course for David was to entrust himself to God. And that's the right course for us as Christians as well. When, when those people or situations come into our lives and to accuse us of sin, of injustice or complacency, the best place to be is in subjection and humility of our God. You will confound those that seek to destroy you when you place yourself in the hands of a holy and righteous God and fully trust him. And this is David's prayer. 
And then he ends here in Psalm verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you, let them ever sing for you and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. I love these verses. They're encouragement for us. David shares his confidence, not in himself, but he trusts in his God. It's amazing to see this as David puts his trust in God, but it's, it's sometimes disturbing to see how people proudly put their trust in other things. Do you remember learning about the, the famous line that the French set up in World War II? Remember what it was called? Maginot, between France and Germany. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but from 1929 to 1938, the French built this line of defense of, of fortifications along their border with Germany under the direction of the French war minister, Andre Maginot. Heavy guns, thick concrete, air-conditioned living areas, areas for recreation, all the way underground, there's railways that were built, all assured the French that they would be safe against the German aggression. And when the German military began to build itself back up under Adolf Hitler, the French smugly thought that they could ignore the matter. And they had this line. Of course, when the Germans finally invaded, they came through Belgium, outflanking this line and rendering it completely useless. It took 10 years for the French to build this line and it took the Germans a few weeks to march around it. Friend, that is just a small picture of what it means to trust anything apart from God. Spend as much time as you want building something. Imagine all the things that can protect you from, it still won't fully protect you. And yet we want our lines, and we put our full trust in those. And so we give obsessive attention to our parents, to our bodies, our possessions, and our accomplishments, and our jobs, and our friendships. And we trust in them to bring peace and security. And all of these things, of course, are extensions of our own power, reflections of our own ability, declarations of our own proud independence from God. But friend, what if none of these things last as long as you do? Consider for a moment what it is that you expect will last as long as you do. Then ask yourself, what will you do if it doesn't? What if your employer, your wealth, your parents, your children, your house, your health, your ministry, your particular relationship, even your physical life does not last as long as you do? That's what the Bible teaches will happen. This is why David says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. We're going to look more about the refuge of God, Lord willing, next week in Psalm 46. He says, let all who take refuge and rejoice, let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. What are you singing for joy over today? What are, is your trust this morning? Where is your refuge? 
What have you invested in for protection that isn't God? What names do you love more than God's name? Friends, God will bring justice. And for the Christian, this brings comfort. For the non-Christian, it brings terror. For many people, the language of God having enemies simply sounds scary. These days, in fact, we associate with acts of terror and escalating violence in certain regions of the world. The idea that God has a purpose in everything and that we must align ourselves with that purpose sounds absolute. And, and skeptics will certainly object. Isn't, isn't the idea that history is going somewhere in illusion invented to give our brief lives meaning? And in case you are skeptical about the idea of history having meaning, much less the idea that God has friends and enemies, I will simply like to ask you a question. Why does it seem as though everyone throughout history has sought meaning in their lives? Why do they want it? Lots of different proposals have been offered for what the meaning of life is, surely. But, but what interests me is the fact that everybody wants to know. Everybody wants to know. Maybe that's because, as Freud suggested, the lack of meaning leaves all of us wanting to manufacture meaning. But why is there this instinct to manufacture meaning? Perhaps you remember the great theological classic movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember the movie at the very end? The U.S. government, now in possession of the ancient Israelites' Ark of the Covenant, hides the real Ark, an ordinary-looking crate in the middle of a warehouse with hundreds of thousands of similar-looking crates. Very often... Counterfeits prove not that there is nothing but counterfeits, but that there is an original. The day will come when all the debates about the meaning of life will end, and you and I will stand before God. Every single person will stand before God. The very one who made us, the very one who will judge us, and if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I must warn you, a meeting will occur that you can't void and you can't delay. And on that day, whatever you have trusted in throughout your life will be exposed. Whether you've trusted in your obedience to the Ten Commandments, the fact that you were baptized, the fact that you were a citizen in what you thought was a Christian nation, the fact that you have never abused your spouse, or the fact that you're pretty good at least most of the time. And I'm here to tell you that nothing that you have trusted up until that meeting with God will save you. God will and should judge you for your sins because he is a holy and righteous God. And your only hope lies in the one who has given himself to take the penalty for your sins. The only hope for you and for me is to turn from all these manufactured Things to the one who gives true hope to turn and trust in Christ. And if you believe and rely upon Christ's work on the cross, there is great hope, as David says here, that covers him with favor as with a shield. My question is for you this morning, who are you? Are you an enemy of God or are you a friend of God? 
The Bible teaches that every one of us is God's enemy by nature. That's the language of the Bible, not some group of fundamentalist Christians who are mean-spirited and narrow-minded. Now, the Apostle Paul taught that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And he also taught that we're all, by nature, objects of God's wrath. And Jesus taught us that all of our sinful actions and thoughts reveal that we have sinful hearts. But enemies? Does God really have enemies? Here's how the author of Hebrews put it. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. God's enemies are those who continually and willfully sin, or as James puts it, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And I ask, I implore, are you one of God's enemies? If so, Paul has some words to you. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't this good news? According to the Bible, we have all been God's enemies. The question is whether you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. By God's providence, he brought you here this morning to sit under the preaching of God's word and his spirit to do work in your heart to regenerate you, to save you, to give you faith, to believe and to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ alone. And I pray you do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your continued patience with us. Father, as we've continued in our lives to so desperately want to love you and serve you, we've failed along the way. We've sinned. Help us to recognize that, God. Help us not to leave this place. And even though we maybe feel uncomfortable under, under the weight of what your word says, Father, help us not to run from that, but to spend time with you. To recognize who we are. And I pray for those that are here this morning. Perhaps you've even been here for months or years and have never truly repented, turned from their trust in themselves and turned to you. God, I ask that you would give them faith to believe and to cling to you and not in anything else. Help us this morning, God to honor you with our lives. Help us, remind us again that you are faithful to your promises, that you will again come back and make all things right. Help us to long for that day, Father. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.